If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The image of a chivalric knight coming to his lady's rescue is one that we can all recognise today. It's a trope that comes from the idea of courtly love, a literary genre that took off in the Middle Ages and later captured the hearts and minds of the Tudor dynasty. To find out more, our section editor Rhiannon Davies spoke to Sarah Griswood, the author of a new book and a feature for the October issue of BBC History magazine, about the Tudor fascination with courtly love. So thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah. And for any listeners who are unfamiliar with the topic of courtly love, can you give us a brief overview of what it actually is? Mm, I know. Big subject, vague subject, but one that still colours everything we think about romance. It was born as this, you know, medieval creed of think of a knight kneeling before a lady, you know, Lancelot and Guinevere. But it came not only to survive, you know, centuries through the medieval period and right into the Tudor one, but as I said, it's actually still with us there in the background today. It was an ideal of pure love, you know, of a sort of spiritual love of a man almost theoretically at least adoring 
a woman, a woman he may never attain. And, you know, something about that has gone on hitting the mark through the ages. You know, think of the Victorians, think of half-hour pop songs today, and think of a lot of the language the Tudors used in the 16th century. And before we come on to the Tudors, which I'm very excited to hear your opinions on, going back to its medieval heyday, why is it that the elites in particular find it such a compelling genre? Yeah, well, I think that is at least partly to do with um, straight social circumstances, because the medieval castle had a lot in common with the Tudor court, that men outnumbered women hugely. So there was no real possibility of what we'd think of as a kind of, you know, normal, healthy, 50-50 relationship between the sexes. Instead, you had this testosterone-heavy environment with a few elite ladies, you know, the queen and her court or the lady of the household and, you know, the, the women immediately around her. And you had to almost find a way to, to rationalise it. At the same time, these elite ladies were actually living lives that we'd think of as very far from privilege today, in that, you know, their marriage would have been made for them, quite likely to a man they'd never met, you know, or one, if it was a royal princess, to cement an alliance with someone who'd always been her family's enemy. So there she was, sold off into the enemy camp. And I mean, I think whatever the differences in upbringing, in psyche, in attitudes, um, these were people too. And I can easily believe that the women of the 12th, 13th, 14th and subsequent centuries needed some sort of an outlet just as we would if we were in that situation. Courtly love was a kind of dream, a literary fantasy, but the reason it didn't stay on the page is that it reflected a real, you know, a powerful emotional reality. And it's this idea, isn't it, of service, so knights kneeling for their ladies, performing acts for them. But something that I found really interesting is it's only for ladies. So if it was someone of the lower orders, they weren't awarded that same... No, that's absolutely true. And I think that's one of the things that makes courtly love a bit of a, a trap, for you know, a fairly deadly trap for women potentially. Um, as you say, back in the 12th century, when it was, you know, when it was all kicking off, um, a man called Andreas Capellanus, Andrew the chaplain, wrote a manual. He wrote a book on loving, you know, laying down the rules of courtly love. And it was all about, you know, he may have had his tongue slightly in cheek, but that's okay. That shows there was a reality, you know, to, to mock, if you like. Um, and maybe he was criticising the whole idea because, you know, a lot of his rules said that, you know, that there's nothing the lover shouldn't do in service to his lady, you know, um, and, and lots of things like, oh, you know, there's, there's an element of, of jealousy in true love. But as you say, it's about the idea of service to ladies. There's this appalling throwaway line I always remember where he says that if 
if the you know the noble lover finds himself enamored of a woman from a woman from the lower classes then a measure of force may be necessary as a convenient cure for her shyness so ladies theoretically at least you served you worshiped other women you raped basically and that's a very that's a very scary thought today and going back to something that you mentioned in your answer the idea that there is nothing you wouldn't do is there something you wouldn't do where does this idea of physical adultery come in well quite there's nothing quite there's nothing the the lover presumed male wouldn't do for his lady the question indeed is exactly what was she going to do for him well, she was supposed to be of higher rank, so she could possibly dispense, you know, patronage, help him on his career. She was probably married to someone else already, so that's one thing she wasn't going to do to him or with him. But was this pure love chaste is one of the questions that's, but that was, you know, it's been bugging thinkers on courtly love since the 12th century. Andreas Capellanus, again, remember, possibly tiny element of mockery, had, had a word for it, had a comment on this. He wrote that the lover might enjoy the naked embraces of his lady in a bed, and yet their love might still be accounted pure as long as the final solace was denied to them. I mean, it sounds like the kind of first base, second base, doesn't it, frankly, of, you know, of, of, of high school movies. So there was possibly, you know, an element of things they could do, but whether it truly, where, to what degree this, uh, essentially this emotionally adulterous love was also physically adulterous is one that changed a bit over the centuries. I mean, in the, tw the late 12th century, Chrétien de Troyes, writing for the first time the story of Lancelot and Guinevere, made it very clear that, no, this was not a chaste love. You know, that once Lancelot had crawled over a bridge made of a sword blade, wrenched apart the iron bars to Guinevere's chamber with his bare hands, cutting himself to the bone, he had his reward. And yet, although this was Arthur's wife having it off with Arthur's best friend, the really bizarre thing is that they are supposed to be admired for the ardour of their feelings rather than reviled, as, of course, in the real medieval world, you know, a woman who committed adultery, both church and state would have yowled for the harshest penalties. And you've mentioned Lancelot and Guinevere there. Why are the Arthurian legends so connected to courtly love? Mm, they did They did come to be completely intertwined. I mean, Tristan and Isolt is another another case in point. I mean, of course, the Arthurian legends had been around a lot longer than courtly love. The figure of Guinevere even entered the story earlier, but not the question of Lancelot and Guinevere's adultery and the round table. That very much kicks off 
it was probably at the same court, the court of uh, Marie de Champagne in the late 12th century, where Andreas Capellanus was writing. So this element of the Arthurian stories, it, it never went away. You know, the different Arthurian tales, including that of Guinevere's adultery, either with Lancelot or with Mordred, um, occurs again and again and again until, of course, um, Thomas Mallory in the year, well, it was printed, it would be printed in the year 1485, rather a major one for Tudor history. You know, he kind of wraps it up into the form we know today. But over the centuries, it did change colour. Um, you know, sometimes Lancelot and Guinevere were admired for the ardour of their love, but yet in others, you know, it, it, it can be what brings down Camelot. There are other stories that speak of, you know, Guinevere suffering the harshest penalties. I mean, I think there's one French one, not with Lancelot, but uh, she and Mordred wind up shut up um, in a a dungeon together, or he shut up with her dead body until he's forced to dine on her remains. You know, so much for a sort of sweet, cute, courtly story. I mean, the idea of courtly love has has gone through, it, it's itself gone through a lot of ups and downs. And more recently, in the last part of the 20th century, the trend was to sort of denigrate it. One academic said that this was, you know, to too many of his colleagues were teaching medieval history to the tune of hearts and flowers. Well, there's not a huge amount that's flowery about that story, I'd say. So coming on now to think about how the Tudors used courtly love, thinking about the first of the Tudor kings, Henry VII, how did he use the genre, use the creed to bolster his new dynasty? Mm. Well, it's odd, isn't it? Because heaven knows we don't normally think of Henry VII as the most romantic of kings. I mean, maybe we should do, because after all, we've got this young man, you know, coming from across the sea to seize his kingdom um, and marry, maybe rescue its princess. What could be more romantic than that? And indeed, even just before Bosworth, it does seem that Henry Tudor wanted to, to borrow some of that lovely romantic colouring. Um, he adopted as his, his, his standard the Rouge Dragon Dreadful, Dragon of Wales, of course, but also Thomas Mallory, as we've said, his book, you know, published, printed by Caxton that very year, uh, also wrote of Arthur having a dream where a red dragon beat down a tyrant boar. Whose symbol was the boar? Richard III's. And of course, once, in th once he was on his throne, but still vulnerable, you know, to pretenders, to Yorkist threat, Henry took care to evoke those, those Arthurian legends, name his eldest son Arthur, ensure that he was born at Winchester, you know, take visitors rushing to see the Arthur's round table hung up in, in, in Winchester Castle. I mean, the Tudors were a new, vulnerable dynasty with not much of a blood claim, indeed and in truth, to the English throne. But what, anyone says they were Johnny's come lately? How dare you? They were King Arthur's heirs, weren't they? And before we come on to Henry VIII, who really took the 
idea of courtly love to new levels. I wanted to talk about Mary Tudor. So this is Henry VII's daughter. And she uses courtly love in a very interesting way. Well, she does. I mean, it seems as if Henry VIII, the, the he would be, the Prince Henry, and his younger sister Mary, perhaps more than their elder siblings, Arthur and Margaret, were brought up. If we look at not only the lists of, um, of, of, of books, of manuscripts in the Royal Library, but the people who were hired as tutors for them, it does seem as if they did pick up. We know that, you know, Mary, for one, was educated in, in a lot of this, this courtly reading. Um, maybe they inherited a you know, romantic strain from their mother. There was a signature of uh, Elizabeth of York as a girl in one of the Arthurian romances in the Royal Library. But later in life, of course, Mary would, you know, as a, as a young girl, she presided over a lot of the tournaments. She was the Lady of the May. She was that lady the knights were supposed to be competing for from a very young age. Later, of course, as was the lot of uh, of princesses, she was married off to the old king of France, you know, at the wishes of her brother, by then Henry VIII. But she extracted from her brother this extraordinary promise, really quite extraordinary for its day, that if she did what he wanted and, you know, married this old man, then if he died before her, as was likely, she could make a second marriage. The phrase was, I think, you know, as my own heart and, you know, and mind best desire, that she could follow her own wishes, which is quite an unusual thing for a 16th century princess to say. And when, sure enough, after only a matter of months, her old husband, Louis of France, did die, Mary, Mary Tudor, took her brother at his word. Maybe she was afraid he wouldn't keep his word. She made a hasty marriage with Henry's friend, Charles Brandon. So it seems as if all that romantic reading, you know, really had sunk in. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Because courtly love, it gave licence to Elizabeth's own flirtatious behaviour. It made the protestation, the, you know, all this sighing devotion of her favourites look laudable, look heroic, you know, wonderful literary figures, um, rather than just making them look frankly ludicrous. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Three great words, 
free fries Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Valid one time on Friday. Send participating McDonald's through 1231-24. Excludes tax must update rewards. And thinking about Henry VIII now, how does courtly love play out in his first marriage, so to Catherine of Aragon? Yes, you see, we don't we don't think of it there, do we? Um, because we tend, thanks to you know many films and so on, to think of Catherine of Aragon as she was in later years. You know, this rather sort of dumpy, doughty figure. We think of her as middle aged, basically, but. The Catherine, the 18-year-old Henry, you know, was had rushed to marry, uh, was herself, you know, a, a woman still in her in her 20s, her early 20s. People remarked, you know, her beautiful red gold hair. And given that there's every sign Henry had grown up besotted with the chivalric fantasy, of course, what the other thing Catherine, Catherine of Aragon was was someone in need of rescue. You know, almost like a princess in a tower, because after the death of her first husband, Prince Arthur, her life in England was very, very harsh, with, you know, effectively her her father-in-law, Henry VII, and her father, Ferdinand of Aragon, competing for who should basically, you know, pay less money for her, her upkeep. She had a, a, a very bitter time from which the new Henry VIII swanned in and rescued her. And if she was older than he, if she was more experienced in the ways of the world than he, if she came from an older dynasty, that all worked for the courtly fantasy. It put her on that kind of, you know, pedestal. And there's every sign that for the first years of their marriage, um, Henry was very content for it to be so. You know, he jousted under the name Corloyal, Sir Loyalheart, with, you know, her initial on his horse's trappings. Trouble is, and in a way this is the other trap of courtly love for women, the fantasy was maybe never really equipped to deal with the kind of, you know, the unromantic downside of marriage, you might say. You know, an ageing wife worn out by the problems of childbed. Um, that, I think, is it's it's when fantasy hits reality that, that courtly love lets women down. And Henry did, of course, find the best outlet for this fantasy in Anne Boleyn, his mistress. Well, he did, totally. And I think it's very significant that the first recorded appearance of Anne Boleyn at the English court is as part of a piece of courtly fantasy. This siege of the Chateau Vert, you know, after tournaments, which where the jousters, it, Henry one of them, of course, it had been all about the heart. Two jousters rode under the banner of, you know, a heart torn asunder. Others had a heart between joy and pain. Henry VIII rode under, you know, she has wounded my heart. Bit prophetic, that one. And afterwards came the pageants, this, this, the mask, this siege of the Chateau Vert, where a green castle representing female virtues, where, where ladies, eight of them, 
defended the castle, throwing dates and rose water, flowers and rose water, comfits, uh, against knights attacking it, Henry VIII among them, with, with, with dates and oranges and, you know, real cannon booming from outside. And the thing I like is we don't have any pictures of the siege of the Chateau Vert in 1522, but we do have the kind of pictures that the Tudors were looking at when they commissioned it. A number of them. I mean, just the, the Luttrell Psalter two centuries before is just one. But you can look at that and see again ladies in a tower throwing flowers to defend themselves from the, the, the attacking knights. And of course, in 1522, representing perseverance, one of the defending ladies was Anne Boleyn. And can you tell us about their love letters as well? Yes. Um, Henry's, Henry's interest in Anne didn't, there's no sign of it beginning immediately after that. Indeed, he was moving into an affair of the far more conventional, you know, not the courtly sense, with Anne's sister Mary Boleyn. But from, you know, perhaps 1525-1526, unfortunately none of his letters are dated, uh, it becomes apparent that Henry had moved his pursuit to Anne and her he was pursuing in courtly terms. The 16 letters of Henry's to Anne, love letters, that we have that are in the Vatican archive um, are particularly what I think are the first ones, you know, often written in French, the, the courtly language, are absolutely straight courtly love, you know, from the book, courtly love stuff. Although he's the king, he is telling Anne that, you know, he's her servant, talking of the heart, you know, his, he and his, and his heart desire only to be hers. He's begging her to be his mistress, but there's a sort of, there is that odd double sense of mistress in the sexual sense and courtly mistress. And of course, tragically, we don't have Anne's letters back. Boy, isn't that the dream of every Tudor historian, that they'll turn up somewhere. Uh, but in their absence, we can only, you know, sort of estimate what, what Anne was writing. But from Henry's delight, his sheer sort of verve in, in flexing his muscles as a courtly suitor, it's fairly apparent that she had successfully positioned herself as this kind of expert courtly lady who, in these terms, could teach even the king a, th a thing or two. And when she moves from becoming his mistress to becoming his wife, courtly love has this dangerous element that comes into play, doesn't it? Yes, well, indeed. Uh, and again, to me, it's that's very much part of the the trap of courtly love, that it seemed, you know, to, to, to elevate women, but it placed a huge limitation on them too. Um, because on the one hand, of course, Anne, and we're very concerned to remember this today, rightly, was, you know, ardent about religious reform, um, you know, a woman of, of, of great seriousness and intellect. But 
at the same time, and I don't think contemporaries would have seen any anomaly here, uh, there was talk of the, the pastime in the Queen's chambers. One of the inhabitants of that chamber, um, the King's niece, Margaret Douglas, was very much involved in the creation of the uh, the Devonshire manuscript, this kind of, you know, like a sort of huge collective notebook, almost a WhatsApp group of 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 courtly poetry. Um, there was talk of, you know, the, there was the music, there was the dancing. Music was a big transmitter of courtly love. Uh, and of course, there were those flirtatious remarks exchanged between Anne and certain of the male courtiers, you know, Norris, Weston, even the musician Smeaton. Remarks which were probably uh, only, you know, the standard kind of ritual pretense of admiration that was paid to any courtly lady, but taken the wrong way in the hands of the wrong person, Thomas Cromwell, they could be used, weaponized against Anne and used to bring about her downfall. I mean, we all argue about what exactly did bring down Anne's downfall. And I think it would be, it probably would be a slightly retrograde uh, view to, you know, to suggest that it was wholly that as a wife, she still kept on behaving as a mistress, you know. Um, there were there were the questions of Henry's desire for a son of court faction, of her disagreement with Cromwell over the proceeds of the, dis the dissolution of the monasteries. But it's nonetheless notable that it was sexual terms, it was the practices of courtly love that gave Cromwell the tools with which to attack her. And when she dies, when she's beheaded, she is beheaded by a French swordsman. How does that connect to courtly love? Well, I know. I mean, again, the question, one of the questions has always been why Henry chose uh, to have to have her beheaded by the by the sword, not the axe. After all, he wouldn't make the same decision for Catherine Howard, and um, his and Anne's daughter Elizabeth would not grant that that courtesy if you, to Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, it's, it is possible just that he retained lingering affection for her. He wanted her death to be as swift, as painless as possible. But I think there is also very possibly this other element, that the sword, think of Excalibur, was very strongly a symbol of chivalry, of the Arthurian stories of this world. And that, you know, in a sense even in the manner of her death, because we know it was Henry himself was very active in, you know, deciding the details, as it were, that even in the manner of, 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 of her death, even as he ordered her death, Henry and Anne were still speaking to each other in the language of courtly love. And you mentioned their daughter, Elizabeth, and it's in Elizabeth that the idea of courtly love really reaches its height. Yes. Well, it does. It reaches the kind of height in a way from which the only place to go is down. Because, of course, Elizabeth absolutely needed to use courtly love, used it at least as much as her mother Anne had done, but in a different way. Because the challenge for Elizabeth, of course, was to find a, a language, you know, a kind of acceptable framing for her controversial 
unmarried female monarchy. You know, there had to be a kind of a way. I'm sure it suited her own temperament as well, totally, because courtly love, it gave license to Elizabeth's own flirtatious behaviour. It made the protestation, you know, all this sighing devotion of her favourites look laudable, look heroic, you know, wonderful literary figures, um, rather than just making them look frankly ludicrous. But even beyond that, as the years wore on, because of course in the the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, everyone assumed that she, like her sister Mary, had to marry. But when it became more and more apparent she was not going to do so, and that she was going to be sort of recast as the Virgin Queen, there had to be a kind of, you know, mythology that worked for this. She'd rejected many of the kind of traditional female patterns, you know, tropes, fertility, a sort of, you know, submissive, virtuous wife, though she figured herself as married to her country. Um, So what was she to be? From the beginning of her reign, she and those around her had used the imagery, the mythology of, of classical literature, of the Bible, But there came to be also the most useful of all, I'd say, was that of courtly love. Because the more you look at it, the more you find the patterns of Elizabeth's court, the ones that may seem quite bizarre to us, fit those of courtly love precisely. It absolutely is that image of a man or lots of men adoring a woman almost as though she were a goddess. And I mean, you know, the courtly lady was supposed to be um, a bit of a tea, was supposed to, well, was supposed to be an absolute menace, basically. She was supposed to make her lover's life uh, a bit of a living hell, you know, testing, testing his devotion. Well, I don't think Elizabeth had too many problems with that one. You know, she was supposed to be... um, above him. Well, of course, no one was further above than the Queen. And and handing out patronage, you know, handing out rewards. Well, again, no one had more rewards at her disposal than the Queen. But also, um, she she was supposed to be giving him a kind of moral example. You know, three years into her reign, there was translated into English, uh, Castiglione's book of the courtier, which said that if the no, you know, if the if the noble lady accepts the love of the the no, you know, the courtier, they may both attain absolute perfection. And this is the kind of moral example that the courtly lady had always been supposed to provide. And you know, after all, you couldn't get a much better moral example, could you, than a woman who was you know, married to God by the ritual of the coronation and meant to be spiritual leader for her whole country. And by the end of her reign, are her courtiers still enjoying courtly love or does it start to become a bit less in favour? Well, quite. Even was it was even Elizabeth truly enjoying it by then. I'd say I can see the patterns of courtly love at Elizabeth's court almost in two 
successive waves. I mean, historians came, didn't they, at one point, to speak of Elizabeth's second reign from um, from the, you know, sort of early, mid-1580s onwards through the post-Armada years. The favourites of the first years, men like Leicester and Hatton, well, Looking at their letters, I feel that however they used courtly love, which Hatton did, you know, far more effectively, and he went far more the whole hog that way than Leicester did. But that may be because, after all, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, did for a long time cherish real hopes of a real marriage with Elizabeth, not this kind of fantasy pretense of adoration. And I think they came to have almost a kind of familial affection for each other. But I, I feel that Leicester and Hatton um, did truly have a huge affection and admiration for, for Elizabeth. The favourites of the second wave, men like well, Walter Raleigh, but particularly the Earl of Essex, they used the language, they took it to even greater extremities. I mean, you know, that they were waging a kind of war of poetry even, you know, of who could write the most fantastical poetry to this, this goddess queen, who by now, after all, had, you know, hidden her, her real ageing face behind the, the mask of youth. But I'm not sure that the, uh, my own feeling is that as the game courtly love became more, more hyperbolic, it was actually losing the kind of emotional reality that had once underlain it. You know, my own feeling is that someone like Essex, he can write all the, you know, about a, a goddess, you know, that, 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 her windows would guide his ships home. You know, he, he can write in the most far more exaggerated language than his stepfather Lester would ever have done. But at the same time, not to Elizabeth, but about her, he or he, well, actually, sometimes to her as well. He was writing a stream of complaints, criticizing her behavior, really not behaving in in a way that you know Andreas Capellanus would have approved at all. And after Elizabeth dies and when James comes to the throne, is courtly love um, important in his court or has it disappeared? No, <laughs> no I feel that, that um, James was not really a man to have anything much to do with romance, fantasy or indeed anything that even seemed to give the upper hand to women. No, I think I think courtly love, you know, basically came to at least a temporary end in 1603. Um, that said, of course, it never truly went away. I mean, the romantic revival of the kind of, you know, as 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 the 19th century came in, the novels of, of Sir Walter Scott saw a huge new interest in everything medieval and particularly in chivalry and, yes, courtly love. I mean, at the end of Elizabeth's reign, you had Edmund Spencer with the connivance of, you know, all, all her favourites, writing The Fairy Queen, which is obviously partly about Elizabeth. Victorian era, centuries on, you've got Benjamin Disraeli calling Victoria the fairy in reference to, uh, you know, to the fairy queen, 
have to say, looking at the figure of the widowed Victoria, I don't quite see the uh, the fairy-like resemblance myself, but hey. And for my final question, what do you think it is that makes the Tudor monarch's handling of courtly love unique? Mm. Oh, that yes, that's interesting. Um, I think the degree to which they both subscribed to it and at the same time um, made use of it. I think the, 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 the most important Tudor monarchs, as it were, you know, um, the two Henrys and Elizabeth, Mary slightly marched to a different drummer, I think, you know, and Edward was, of course, very young. Um, they, they all absolutely consciously made use, in Henry VII's case of the Arthurian patterns, the other two, you know, actually of courtly love, as such, as well. But at the same time, um, I kind of began writing this book thinking that it was the Tudors themselves who were fools for love, if you like. You know, a dynasty in love with the idea of love. Yes, I think that's partly true, but only because they allowed themselves to be. Actually, I think what it chiefly was, was a tool to their hands, and they made use of it with the greatest possible skill. That was Sarah Gristwood. Her book, The Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty, is published by One World and is available from the 23rd of September. You can read Sarah's feature on the Tudor obsession with courtly love in the October 2021 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. It also includes pieces on medieval anxieties, Tudor romance, the legacy of 9-11, and how the British monarchy survived the First World War. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when we'll be answering your questions on the Borgias. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.